Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the 17th episode of Real Travels, the podcast for film and TV lovers who also love to travel. My name is Lisa Iannucci. I'm a little hoarse tonight, and that's because I've been yelling at the Emmys tonight because it was actually so good and there were so many really cool surprises. Uh, Not only am I the founder and host of this podcast, I'm also the author of On Location, the film and TV lovers travel guide, which you can order at Roman Publishing's website at rowman.com or get an autographed copy through Oblong Books in Rhinebeck, New York. You can visit their website at www.oblongbooks.com, and I'm going to take a sip of my drink because it's my podcast and I can do that. (laughs) So let's once again give a shout-out to this week's Real Travel sponsor, and that is Mario Scalzi of Parker Villa Tours. I keep tooting Mario in each of his uh, episodes that he's sponsoring, and there's a good reason why. If you definitely want to take a trip where you seek to stay in a clean, quality home instead of a hotel, even though he can do hotels too, but I would actually check out his website at parkervillas.com, check out to see what areas. It's cool to kind of stay in the area and stay in a home in the area that you're traveling to because you start to feel a little more like a local versus a tourist, and I think it's super cool. Mario can help you with any of your trips and just check out his website again at parkervillas.com. And so it is Emmy night. And like I said, I am actually tired. I've been, I've been yelling at the TV. I've been happy about who won. I've been really surprised. Um, So let's talk a little bit about that. So first um, we have the Supporting actor in a comedy series, we're not going to go through each one of them, but obviously you guys know by now, if you're listening to this, that Henry Winkler won for his um, uh, appearance on Barry. And the cool thing about this is that this is the first time that Henry Winkler has won in his entire career. And what was really funny was that Henry actually said to his kids, hey, you can go to bed now, daddy won. Well, his kids are grown up, they're in their 30s, and he's had this, he says he's had this speech written since like years ago, probably when he was on Happy Days. So congratulations to Henry Winkler. And keeping this a little bit of like film and TV travel related, the really cool thing about Henry Winkler is that there's actually a statue of him as Fonzie in Milwaukee. And I took a picture with that statue, actually, when I went to Milwaukee, I was headed to the Packers game. I definitely sought out that um, iconic statue that they have there of him as the Fonz, took my picture of it, had to have my picture of it. And, of course, it's mentioned in my book. Um, But, of course, he's done 
so much in his career, but iconically is known as Fonzie from Happy Days. And I'm actually reading uh, his co-star's book right now. I'm actually reading Marion Ross's book called My Days, Happy and Otherwise. So maybe that was a little bit of a dink that he won the, <laughs> the supporting actor in a comedy series role. But congratulations to him. And congratulations to one of my favorite my favorite shows on television right now, which is The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. Alex Borstein won for her role as a supporting actress. Uh, the writing won awards for it. The directing won awards. Um, and, of course, Rachel Brosnahan won for lead actress in a comedy series. She actually plays Mrs. Maisel. And, oh, my God, it's so good. So if you haven't watched it, please go back to season one and watch it now. It's so funny and so good, and I'm so happy for them. Of course, I also wanted Glow to win. I also wanted Willie Tomlin from Grace and Frankie to win. I also wanted so many other people to win. So, of course, not everybody could win, but I'm really happy with the people that did. I also want to say congratulations to Darren Chris for his role in the assassination of Gianni Versace, American Crime Story. And the reason why I'm saying that is because my daughter is a huge fan of Darren Chris. And we actually went to go see him in Hedwig, uh, the, cra- the, the Hedwig, the Angry Inch, when it was on Broadway. And it was really funny because we were walking um, prior to going to see him in that uh, musical. We were walking the streets of New York one day, a completely different day. And I said to my daughter, hey, Sam, that's where uh, the angry inch is. Wouldn't it be funny if Darren Chris came out of this side door? Lo and behold, Darren Chris comes out of this side door exactly as we're passing it. The door hits Sammy. She turns around and I said, Sammy, it's Darren. And she literally went weak in the knees, went down on her knees and just stared at him as he was walking by. She couldn't believe that literally just happened. So funny Darren Chris story, running into him, uh, coming out of the side, the side door at his, the musical that he was in, and he was so good in it. And I'm very happy for him uh, in the assassination of Gianni Versace for picking up lead actor in a limited series or movie. Another congratulations to John Mulaney, who's seriously one of my favorite comedians. He's so funny. Um, again, a lot of really great competition in that, in that category, but John definitely deserved uh, the, the win on this. So many great um, acting actors and, and shows that were on this year. It was really a tight, tight race and just such amazing talent. But the most, of course, the most wonderful part of the entire night was when um, Betty White showed up. Because, of course, you know, she is in her 90s and everybody's like, oh, we haven't seen Betty in a while. But we got to see her tonight. She looks amazing. And congratulations to, again, everybody. And uh, yay, Betty, because there isn't anything like Betty White showing up on your show. I don't care. Uh, Nothing beats that. So congratulations again to everybody. And before, so let's, let's actually get to the uh, reason why I do this show, which is my interviews as well. So I, my guest today, speaking of Emmys, he has won an Emmy Award. Uh, and my guest is Larry Namer. He's president and CEO of Maton 
Global Entertainment Group. But what we know him as, and I'm, you're going to hear me repeat this at the beginning of the interview, is he's the founder of E, the founder of E. When I tell you that when E first came on, I mean, literally that station, now, I am not going to say it changed me, but it opened up a world for me because I grew up back in the 80s and we didn't have all these 50 million stations that you guys have. So when E-Network came on and you got to get entertainment news 24 hours a day, that was super cool. So me being an entertainment writer and somebody who loves film and TV, it was just, it was just amazing for, for us. So I had a wonderful opportunity to interview Larry and talk to him about business and the industry and, of course, his favorite films that he's traveled to. Because I'm not going to let him get away with being on this show without talking about that. So here is my inter- interview with Larry Neighbor, the founder of E. So today on Real Travels, I am honored and I have to say a little bit nervous to have as my guest today, Larry Neymar, President, CEO of Mayton uh, Entertainment Group. And you may actually know him as the co-founder of E! Entertainment Television. Yes, that E! Entertainment Television. He's with me today, people. So I am extremely excited about this. And I'm going to give just a very short bio about Larry after I say my hello. How are you today, Larry? Uh, doing really well. So out here in L.A. this week and uh, just relaxing kind of. Uh, yeah, I hope it's not as hot and sticky in L.A. as it is in New York today. It's like 90 and just disgusting. No, it, it kind of cooled down a little. We had a there was a big heat wave out here, but uh, you know I came back for the holiday, and so before I get back on the road, I'm just uh, taking advantage of the good weather and uh, not all that much to do this week, so it's kind of fun. Oh, very nice. And with somebody with your background and your schedule to have some downtime, I I don't know how you do it and how you fit it in, but we're going to talk about that a little bit later. But before we get into the questions, I just want to tell our audience that in addition, um, you know, we talked about you and and what you work on now, but in the past, you've actually started other companies, um, including Comspan Communications, Steeplechase Media, we talked about you being a founding partner of Mayton Global Entertainment Group, and they actually develop. Um, and maybe you can tell us a little bit about it because you're ba- that company's based in China, right? Yeah, <clears throat> about uh, nine years ago, I um, you know kind of made a decision that I wanted to go and explore China and uh, you know see what kind of opportunities were there and. We were smart. We got in early, and you know, we managed to build a media company there that um, you know does TV and film and internet content, and we do a little bit of music and some live events. And uh, we've been there nine years now, uh, you know, quite successfully, and you know, not not a lot of headaches. And it's you know, it's been kind of a fun experience. And you know, I, I did a bunch of stuff in Russia for a while, so it was uh, that was a good training ground for you know, getting ready to go into China. Now, before we get into more about all of this, I mean, how does, first of all, your story and your accomplishments are mind-boggling to me. So how does someone who started out wanting to teach and becomes a cable splicer go on to do what you've done? I mean, did you have aspirations when you were younger of something like this? 
Well, no, not really, because you know I grew up in in uh, what you know I've later later in life learned was a poor area of Brooklyn, uh, Coney Island, and um, my mom worked for the Department of Social Services. My father drove a Pepsi Cola truck and delivered cases of soda, and you know the aspiration you know then was. Uh, you know, hey, get a, a city job or something where you can retire at 65 and get a pension. And so it was very security-based. And most, most of the people that I grew up with, you know, ended up going to work for the city or, you know, the fire department or police department or, <clears throat> you know, or something like that. But, um, you know, we we really never could figure it quite out. But, you know, I turned out different <laughs> And, you know, my friends growing up and my siblings, and we think maybe my mother dropped me on my head. But, um, <laughs> you know, kind of when I hit college, I started to really look around and say, boy, there's got to be more than, you know, more than this. And um, I, uh, you know, I ended up in the cable business for what I thought was going to be just a summer job. Um, and it was splicing cables on underground in New York, which means you lift the sewer and you go down under the streets and you play with the rats and the roaches and do all of that. And uh, it was just a great time because it was the very beginning of cable and big companies were beginning to look at getting into it. They weren't in it quite yet. And by the time they decided they want to be in it, I, you know, was already, you know, kind of entrenched in what was turned into Manhattan Cable and timing bought the company and, um, you know, they said, hey, wait a second, there's a guy in those sewers that uh, knows how to read balance sheets and stuff like that. So, you know, it was, I was very much in the right place at the right time. That's that's actually what I was thinking. I mean, you you were at, like you said, the forefront of all of this. You had the knowledge. You had the technical aspects that, that other people didn't have. I mean, do you think that, that if you had done something like this today to be able to start the companies you started today, do you think it would have been obviously much harder to take that path? Um, <clears throat> no, actually today I think it's it's much easier. Um, you know, the, the barriers to entry have come down with the internet. I mean, you know, you could start a a video service now, you know, literally with your cell phone. Uh, you know, back in in those days, you know, to start something, the the financial investment was so much more serious. You're looking at tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions of dollars. Uh, you know, to start a TV network. When we started E, the going rate was, you know, it was like sixty or seventy million. Uh, we didn't, we never raised that amount, but. Um, you know, very, very difficult because your equipment costs and your your overhead were were incredible. Today, talent wins out. I mean, you look at the music business. Uh, you know, where it used to cost you half a million dollars if you wanted to be a recording artist. You know, to get in a studio and cut records and stuff, you can cut them on your laptop now and and have better quality than you know people did back then. So, um, I, I think it's actually easier because the barriers to entries are down. The ability to reach consumers directly is is you know something brand new nobody ever had that ability you had to go through a network or a record company so um you know i mean and, and that's kind of where i am now i've always been you know forward thinking and one of the reasons i like china is because i've really been focused on on multi-platform stuff in other words developing a story that's not just uh, a tv story but it's also got a social media component a merchandising component an e-commerce component and 
uh, you know, all of that stuff. And I find it much easier to do in a place like China where they don't have a lot of, uh, you know, built-in legacy uh, systems or, or technical uh, equipment. And it's really interesting because when I was growing up, I mean, you had, you know, channel 2, 4, 5, 7, 9, 11, and 13, and that was it. And then all of a sudden, like, cable came along, and, and that was exciting. And then the Internet. And you're right. I mean, there's so much opportunity out there. And I, I can't imagine when you were starting um, E to, to, to look at it as you were much more limited. So what surprised you back then to starting the company and saying, hey, we're actually more limited? Or did you not think of it that way? Well, you know, <clears throat> what happened was I, I had um... – I had rose in Manhattan Cable to eventually become director of operations, and I was in charge of, uh, you know, all the technical departments from service to construction, installation, and um, and engineering. And and then the cities began to realize that cable was good for more than just reception, and they began to issue franchises and recruit people to come in and operate those franchises. And I was still a kid. I was in my 20s then. But I was one of the only people in the country who knew how you build an underground system because Manhattan had to be underground. There were no telephone poles. And all these mm -hmm. cities wanted um, systems to go underground and not on telephone poles. Um, so I was recruited to come out to L.A. and build you know, Valley Cable, which at that time was the first 61-channel two-way interactive cable system in the country. And, you know, it was a great opportunity for me at 30 years old to, you know, A, be in charge of the whole thing myself, but also to have such an advanced technical system to work with and be able to put, you know, start putting my programming ideas to work and seeing how that, that happened. And then, you know, a few years later, the company that I worked for, which is a Canadian company, sold out and they went back to Toronto. And... um I said, you know, I didn't go from New York to L.A. to move to Toronto for sure. <clears throat> so I, um, a, a friend of mine, Alan Marufka, you know, who's from New Jersey and myself, we were kicking around ideas. And, you know, we said, you know, what about, you know, entertainment tonight, 24 hours a day? And, you know, we, we kind of played with that and said, you know, if you think about it, cable TV is like an electronic newspaper back then. You know, ESPN is the sports page, and CNN was the news, and Home Shopping Network was the, the ads. And we said what's missing is the entertainment pages, which is the second most read section of any newspaper. And, you know, again, we're talking pre-internet there, so, you know, we are talking people reading newspapers. And um, right. we just said, you know, we're going to write a plan and raise the money and do it because it's just so logical. And, you know, like I say, at that time, the going – entry rate for doing a TV network, I think it was about $60 million. I think MSNBC started around then at about that amount, $60, $65 million. And um, we, you know, spent three years trying to raise money and everybody telling us, oh, that's a great idea, but you're not Rupert Murdoch. You can't do this. And we finally found a bond house on Wall Street who was willing to give us $2 million. And, you know, we were like, hey, what do we do with $2 million? We need 60 And they were like, well, all we could give you is two. And, you know, I said, you know what? Let's just take the two and go for it. And we did. And, you know, we we were one of those overnight successes that took several years to to really formulate. And uh, 
stuff. And, and, you know, as soon as it went on the air, everybody just looked at us and said, oh, why didn't you tell us that's what you wanted to do? We would have given you money a few years ago. Um, you know, it just blew up and started growing, not just in the U.S., but we were in 14 countries in the first year. And, you know, just entertainment is, you know, the chatter of pop culture around the world. People are fascinated with what happens in the business. Um, and we just capitalized on it. But, you know, when people say, when did you know it was going to be successful? And, you know, the answer to that was for Alan and I, it was the first day we thought of it. We we just knew in our souls that this was a no-fail kind of idea. First of all, your your entertainment network changed me because being I always wanted to be an entertainment journalist and, and do what I, I do now. And I remember when all of this debuted, and it was exciting because I was like, good, I don't want to watch like a CNN or News Network 24 hours. I want to watch entertainment 24 hours. So it changed me. And did you hear stories about people afterwards after you went on the air who were like, this is amazing? Yeah, you know, it, it was very pirate because we had to be. I mean, we didn't have the money mm-hmm. that everybody else had, so we had to be very, very inventive. And we, we knew that we didn't have money to, to spend on fancy equipment or, or anything like that, so a lot of what we did looked very pirate on air. You know, it looked like we were filming it in our basement, but <clears throat> in fact, we, we our first studio was, was the old Hollywood Freight Railroad Station. And but we knew that the main thing we had to do was find hosts that people either loved or hated but felt something. So we really, really focused in on hosts, and we put um, over seven thousand people on tape just to pick the first five. And you know, people now today they say, "Oh, you were so lucky you had all those great hosts." Well, we weren't lucky. Uh, we really focused in on that. You know, we came up with Greg Kinnear, who you know. Went on to mm-hmm. you know have a great acting career. Julie Moran went on to do Entertainment Tonight, World War Sports. Mark DiCarlo did Studs. Sam Rubin is still on television. Uh, you know the entertainment reporter on for, for Hollywood News out here, and uh, Richard Blade, and you know just on and on and on. Um, you know, and then a little later, you know, came Howard Stern and uh, E Hollywood True Stories and and all of that stuff. So. Um, you know, it was it was just an amazing time, and a lot of it just came out of the need to be inventive and come up with new forms that nobody ever thought of. You know, speaking of that, I've I've wanted to ask you, thinking of things that people have never thought of, um, can we talk a little bit about reboots? Because today it seems like everybody is rebooting everything, mostly from the 80s, I even think. You know, you have, like, TV shows like ALF, Murphy Brown, Magnum P.I. I mean, I, I could go on and on about all of these TV shows that are being rebooted. Do you really what, – what's your opinion on that? Do you think it's a great idea, or why not come up with something original? I, well, I've always been, you know, more let's come up with the future, not the past. Uh <clears throat> and stuff. I think that's kind of a fallback to, you know, just lack of come you know, putting yourself in a position where you have to come up with good new ideas. Um, you know, the the business has changed and you still it's it's become global. Uh the days where you used to think of just the United States are long gone. You you have to consider the the entire world. Uh, it's not just television, it's internet and all those other things and I think you still have a lot of people, particularly in the TV business, that are trying to hold on to what was as opposed to 
realizing that they better start focusing on what will be. Um, Mm -hmm. So, you know, I think if you look at the research and everybody is still so research driven as opposed to instinctive driven that they look at, you know, the, the whole thing of millennials and they go, oh, millennials love the 80s. Well, you know, so let's develop every TV show we can that existed in the 80s. I, I think it's a short-term patch. I don't think it's a long-term solution. Oh, let's hope so, because I even think they just did um, oh, Cadney and Lacey, and, and they did the pilot of it, and the pilot didn't even get picked up. And I'm like, you're, yeah. you're not giving us what's from the 80s. You're just trying to make it today. It's It's just... It drives me nuts. But anyway, that's enough about my spiel. But when I was, you know, we talked about when I was a kid, I mean, you only had a few television stations. And another obstacle I've seen, too, in in getting shows to become successful is that it's much harder to watch because there's so much available out there to watch that it's really hard to get these shows to have such a big audience. Do you, what, what do you think is the biggest obstacle to making shows so successful the way they were when back in the 80s? Well, I mean, number one, I think you're right. I think the amount of good television, you know, people say to me, you know, television's dead. And I'm going, you kidding? This is the golden age. There's amazing stuff on television now. I mean, I don't think scripted television has ever been as good as it is today. I can't watch everything that's good. <clears throat> you know, so I think that they, the amount of stuff that goes on needs to come out because I don't think the economics will support it over the long, long term. For the short next two or three years, it definitely will. But, you know, one of the things that I'm looking at is, you know, how do you create the smart agent? Day? You know, what is it that I can go to as a TV consumer, a media consumer, that becomes my guide to this incredibly broad world of uh, things available to me. I don't think that exists. And, and, you know, for a person like me, I think that's a great opportunity to kind of jump in and try and figure that out. Mm-hmm. Wow. And so what do you think, so so is that what you think going forward needs to be fixed? And, and Or do you think we have other obstacles to worry about in, in what the television and film industry are, are facing? Well, I, I think you need a marketing vehicle for for one, and something mm-hmm. that's that's intelligent that lets you sort out what you want, me sort out what I want, and you know, and basically at the end of the day, you come up with a world where literally everybody has their own channel, um, and and I mean channel of choices, not not that you created, mm-hmm. but you know, you might want to watch uh, Simpsons after sixty minutes, and I want to watch Seinfeld and stuff like that. So, you know, there's got to be a way to search this stuff out, organize it, and then feed it back to yourself, and you know, in a way that's, you know, customized to you. So that's where I say, you know, everybody will have their own channel at some point. Uh, so there mm-hmm. needs to be something that, that is the trusted smart agent, let's call it, that, that helps you sort through this, this maze of stuff. But I think, you know, just in terms of challenges for the industry, you know, we as, you know, the American TV industry, we're just so used to um, everybody around the world. You know, we make programs and they buy them and they dub them in their in German or whatever their native language is. And, you know, it was a great business for us. But now um, countries around the world are making fabulous television. Uh, I mean, there's a great show last year from Israel called Fauda. Um, which was a smash hit and stuff, an amazing show. And even though it was subtitled, uh, you know, people loved it. And you're starting to see, I'm seeing things in China now that I know are going to have legs here. And, 
You look at uh, reality TV, really the bulk of it comes out of the Netherlands. So, you know, there's really this adjustment to the international markets that I think is the biggest obstacle um, because I think, you know, people in the American entertainment business have become spoiled into thinking we are the center of the universe and will continue to be. And unfortunately, that's not the way it's going to be. Absolutely. And, you know, we, we you talked about other countries and other shows coming out of those countries, and that kind of segues nicely into I wanted to talk to you a little bit about film and TV tourism, which is kind of what my podcast and my book are about. Um, so before I get to that, though, have you ever traveled to, to, to go to a specific film site or TV site just because as a fan you wanted to see where that was filmed? Oh, sure. Absolutely. Many times. Like what? Uh, me you know, I mean, I, I, what what started me in Russia was, you know, watching, uh, you know, all these kind of Cold War spy movies and stuff like that. You know, so Russia became, uh, you know, of great interest to me. And, you know, I've gone to, to Greece because uh, there was an old uh, uh, movie uh, with, uh, I, forget, I forget her name, the, the girl from Splash, uh, uh, but yeah, you know, I've gone to you know islands Darryl in, in Hanna? Greece. Yeah, Daryl Hannah. Daryl mm-hmm. Hannah was in the movie with Peter Gallagher, I think. And you know, I've gone there because I saw it in the movies. That's awesome, and and it, it's hard though now because at one point, like we're starting to hear that some of these places are getting such an influx of tourists because of the success of the shows or or the films that they're getting ruined or they're having some sort of an effect on the area. Do you, um, you know, what, what's your thought about that? And, and do you think that the industry should still open places up and say, hey, we filmed here? You, you know what I'm trying to say? Yeah, and I, I, I've actually got, you know, I, I think it's much more positive than that. I mean, I did, I brought a show to Russia back in 1991, Um it was a soap opera here called Santa Barbara, and mm-hmm. um, the show we were we were very smart when we brought it there because we really felt that it would resonate with this post-Soviet <coughs> audience. And um, for ten years, it was either the number one or number two show in the market. But what happened there over time was very interesting. Is when you ask when people started doing tourism surveys and they would ask Russians, you know, if you come to the United States, where are you going? They go, oh, New York, Las Vegas, and Santa Barbara. And you know, people were astounded that Santa Barbara became the third most desired, you know, tourist location for for Russians. And you know, when they questioned wow. them about it, they said, well, you know, we kind of already know everything about it. Um, Mm-hmm. So it had a profound effect there, and nothing negative happened with Santa Barbara. And still to this day, the recognition of Santa Barbara as a as a big tourist destination for Russia still exists. So I, I haven't really heard any negative stories, you know, where people just got flooded because of something. I'm doing a show now in uh, in China, but for an American audience called Explore China, and it's it, doesn't really focus on the historical side of it, but focuses more on the uh, the today and pop culture nature of things going on in China. And um, we're reading 20 episodes for the beginning of 2019, and you know it explores what China's doing in in 
environmental efforts and things that you know we just are not aware. Uh, I mean, right mm-hmm. now China's the biggest importer of French wine. Uh, you know, you go to the, wow. the auctions in Paris and you can't even buy first growth because the Chinese are gobbling it up. So, you know, the wine thing, Shanghai now, next to New York, to me, is the greatest food city in the world. Uh, so as Americans, we just are not aware of that. All we hear about is pollution and censorship and stuff like that. So mm-hmm. this 20 episodes kind of explores the new China. That's awesome. Um, and and I agree with you that there's a lot of really good, um, because like I said, you know, that's kind of what I focus on right now. I mean, you have people flocking to like Croatia, you know, for, for even Mamma Mia, which was filmed in Croatia and Greece, and you know, Game of Thrones and all these other places. I love the fact that people are getting out there and seeing, and I think the industry could actually do more to help that. Because there are so many places where things are filmed and the local economies could use help. So to actually create some sort of like additional tourism opportunities there would be awesome, you know. But that's maybe that's something I need to be working on. <laughs> but yeah, no, I mean, there's, I there's you, no question. I mean, it definitely, you know, like I say, I haven't seen the numbers get so large that they've actually hurt any place. And they do feed the local economy and and you know mm-hmm. and get people you know, out of their comfort zone and to see that there's a whole other world out there, you know, which I think that, you know, we as Americans, you know, need to really start to to focus on the fact that there's, you know, a lot more, you know, influence of the rest of the world than there was even 20 years ago. Absolutely. Now, I know, like I said, I know you're very busy. I just got another one, one or two more quick questions for you. I mean, you've done stuff in America, stuff in Russia, stuff in China. Something tells me you're not done. You don't seem to be somebody that's going to, like, retire and sit back. What else are you working on, and are you picking another country next? Uh, no, well, you know, some of, some of what we're doing in China is looking at China almost the way a Broadway producer would look at Connecticut, you know, if you have a Broadway play idea, you don't start on Broadway where it's incredibly expensive and you're under the eye of the New York Times. You start in Connecticut, you get the bugs out of it and stuff like that. Um, the game in the the media game in the U.S. has become incredibly consolidated and co- incredibly expensive, so that true independents like myself, you know, find it harder and harder to 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 play the game here. I mean. To do a pilot of a scripted drama now is like you know eight nine million dollars, um, you know, and if you get one out of ten sold, you've done well. And there are very few independents that could go into that kind of hole. But you know what I've come up with, and you know Maton has come up with, I should say, is that we could experiment with ideas and stuff in China incredibly economically, and then you know almost the way you take your play to Connecticut, get the bugs out of it, and then bring it back the other way. And, um, you know, so that's kind of where where we've been focusing on is using <clears throat> other countries as a way to develop shows. We we got a show we're developing in China now. We've sold in like five other countries, um, you know, without it ever having an American debut. So we, we like that model. It makes a lot of sense. And, um, you know, we, we just continue following that. So we're doing stuff now in India, Pakistan, Sri Lanka, Bangladesh, and, you know, places like that. Wow, I, I could I could talk to you for hours. Um, what you've done, what you've accomplished, and and your your brain and intelligence is just amazing to me. So, when are you going to let me write your memoir, or are you working on one now? 
<laughs> no, you know, a lot of people keep asking me to do that. And, um, yeah. you know, for me is, you know, I don't want to start it until I know what the last chapter is. And I'm not even <laughs> close to last chapter. You know, I'm just, I wake up in the morning with 10 new ideas. Most of them are dumb and make no sense at all. And, you know, kind of by lunchtime, I catch myself going, what were you thinking? But, um, you know, I'm just excited every day to start new stuff. And uh, so, you know, the the only way, actually, the only thing that intrigued me, I'm a, I'm a wannabe chef. So I, I, I and I'm good. I, I cook really good. So somebody suggested to me, why don't you do a, um, a, a book that's basically a bio and a cookbook all in one. So you could do like the Manhattan years, the Russia years, the LA years, the China years and mm-hmm. stuff, because each of those kind of, you know, has a different cuisine that I was cooking during that time. So that that one's intriguing. But the the idea of just doing a straight bio or memoir doesn't really excite me. Well, I mean, even from a – first of all, I love that idea, pursue that. That's an incredible idea. But, um, you know, I, I also love the idea of, like, a lot of business advice that you could be giving to up-and-comers. I mean, I read in this interview that you did um, quite some time ago – that the person asked you what advice you would have to upcomers, and then you said to really be honest with yourself. If you're still of the belief your idea is a good one, stick with it and preserve the hardship of any startup. But on the other side, you're admitting to yourself that what you seem like a good idea at the time may not longer may not be any longer, and it's time to give it a proper burial. So you're obviously listening to your own advice. If you say by lunchtime, you're like, what am I thinking, right? <laughs> yeah. I, I have more bad ideas than I have good ideas, but I, I'm, you know, at the point where I catch them and shake my head and smack myself and just go, you know, basically my favorite word is next, you know, and go, okay, that doesn't make sense, next. Yeah, it's really good advice because a lot of people, even screenwriters and, and TV writers are out there trying to pursue ideas that, you know, really aren't going well. And to just say, hey, it's okay to move on and move on to something else. You could always come back to it. I think that's really, really good advice, especially yeah. coming from somebody with your accomplishments. You, you're amazing. And I am thrilled and beyond honored that you came on to my show to talk to me today. And I know you're super busy. So, um, well, maybe except this week, you took some time off. But thank you so much for doing this, week this is, with is me today, Larry. The garden, so yeah. So anyway, thanks oh. for having me. Thank you so much. Enjoy your garden. Okay. Bye now. Is that not cool or what? I mean, Larry Namer, the founder of E. I can't say it enough. <laughs> So I want to thank Larry for being my guest today on Real Travels. And, again, I also want to thank Mario Scalzi of Parker Villa Tours at www.parkervillas.com. He's my sponsor. Please make sure you check out his website. Please make sure you pick up my book. It's called On Location, the Film and TV Lover's Travel Guide. And please follow me on Twitter at Virgin Traveler and follow my podcast. And, finally, um, you know, until my next podcast, which will be up very, very soon. Please get out and travel.
With everything you have on your plate, earning your degree online seems impossible. But at Grand Canyon University, we specialize in helping you fit a master's degree in business into your busy day. Your graduation team, led by your own GCU counselor, provides you with the personal support you need to succeed. Achieve your goals with a plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu. If you only have a 401k, you're not getting the most for retirement. Wait, what? Add a Robinhood IRA on top, then they'll boost it by 3%. You can do that? And if you transfer in any retirement account, you get 3% on top of that. Is there a limit to the match? No limit. Robinhood Gold gets you the biggest contribution match of any IRA on the market. Sign up for Robinhood Gold at Robinhood.com boost by April 30th. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Match on transfers subject to additional terms and conditions. Robinhood Financial LLC. Member SIPC.